0: Welcome to the History Unplugged podcast, the unscripted show that celebrates unsung heroes, myth-busts historical lies, and rediscovers the forgotten stories that changed our world. I'm your host, Scott Rank. Before the Civil War, the American economy was a lot like Russia. It was agriculturally based, and it depended on the labor of people who didn't have full legal rights. But after the Civil War, America rapidly industrialized, and it became a lot more Western European in how its economy was set up. What was the tipping point? Was it just the emancipation of slaves? Well, it was actually a lot more than that, and it was a story of industrialists who got directly involved in the war effort and radically transformed America. In this episode, I'm talking with Jeffrey Wirt, who's the author of the new book, Civil War Barons, The Tycoons, Entrepreneurs, Inventors, and Visionaries Who Forged Victory and Shaped a Nation. Jeffrey argues that before the Civil War, there were plenty of inventions in America that were changing it, but really, except for the expanding network of railroads and telegraph lines, a lot of these inventions hadn't affected the lives of most Americans. The nation was largely rural, with only small pockets of manufacturing. But with the Civil War, it created an enormous wave of industrial growth and development, producing a revolution in manufacturing, inventions, for example, being able to produce horseshoes by the tens of millions. These innovations sustained Union troops, affected military strategy and tactics, and made the killing fields of the Civil War even deadlier. Some of these figures include Cornelius Vanderbilt, John Deere, Edward Squibb, and Andrew Carnegie, and other eclectic members like Henry Burden, a Scottish immigrant who invented a horseshoe-making machine in the 1830s, and refined the process to be able to forge a horseshoe every second, supplying the Union army with 70 million horseshoes during the four years of the war. So I hope you enjoyed this discussion with Jeffrey Wirt which is a new look at a transformational moment in America's history.
1: Jeffrey, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I look forward to our conversation.
0: Yeah, this is an area of history that people wouldn't know that much about, or people wouldn't even think that existed. We're talking about the capitalist political alliance in the Civil War, but also the huge amount of technological innovation that happens. Most people could connect to World War II and think about avionics, Atomic weapons and things of that nature. But we see similar things like that happening about a century earlier. So, before we get into all of this, can you tell me what piqued your interest about this topic and made you want to write this book?
1: Well, I was looking around for different things to do. I'm basically a military historian, and uh, all my previous works have been from biographies of military figures to uh, campaign or battle studies or whatever would be the case. And I was looking around and in discussions. I came across this idea of these men and to me, not only, you know, these industrial and the changes that are happening because of the war and the impact it's going to have on the war. Uh, and then at the same time I wanted to personalize the story. Uh, that was more, that was very important to me. Uh, other than just numbers, you have to give, uh, you have to bring these individuals, I hate, you know, I hate to use this term necessarily, life, but you certainly want to uh, portray them or capture them if you can. So that was the idea behind it. And then you, cause you realize that when you look, when the war began in 61, there's no question that the 11 Confederate States faced long odds. Their chances of winning the war, the only way they could win the war was through an ultimately a political settlement they'd have to accomplish that by battlefield victories. In turn, what we forget about is the enormous disadvantage that the North faced, and that was to conquer an area of seven hundred and fifty thousand square miles roughly, you know, with the Appalachian Mountain Change, rivers and all that. And to do that, the federal government, which was, you know, woefully undermanned, I mean, everybody knows there are sixteen thousand officers and men in the regular army, but I think at the time of the 1860, 35,000 civilians worked for the government, and of that number, nearly 31,000 worked in the post offices. <laughs> so there wasn't really a government, and they had to marshal, mobilize, all, and organize all these resources, and the only way to do that would be to uh, depend upon private enterprise. So in turn, for the North to be able to carry the war into the South, and that's what they had to do. They had to conquer the South to win. They found that out after first bull run of Manassas. This war wasn't going to go away anytime soon, and so, in turn, it's going to require this massive undertaking, unprecedented in our history. Now, we had, you know, civilians and uh, businessmen had always contributed to our war efforts. Um, from the War of 1812, Mexican War most recently Uh, The government only essentially had, you know, Harbors Ferry and Springfield Armories uh, to produce weapons. But um, it was this with this scale they never known about. So it's going to require that. And in turn, there are going to be individuals who are going to contribute to their efforts to the war effort of the north. And uh, what I chose to select, I ended up with 19 individuals that I chronicle in this book. A couple criteria for inclusion. One of the main ones was their companies uh, will have an impact after the war. Some of them are still in business today. Numbers of them are still in business today, and they got their – not their start, but the war certainly changed the outlook of their businesses. And in turn, also some who came up with uh, innovations, uh, Christopher Spencer, repeating rifle, uh, James Eads uh, uh, with gunboats. Uh, Robert Parrott with the cannon and those kind of uh, other criteria that are used for it. So it's an eclectic group. uh, But that's why I looked at them and became, honestly, their stories are rather fascinating. And I think they're they're a remarkable group of men.
0: Could you talk about what it looked like for industrials to get involved in a war before the Civil War? You mentioned that this happened in the War of 1812 and other periods. Do we see stuff like this even going all the way back to the revolutionary war or is this a child of industrialization?
1: Uh, this is well things combined but primarily uh it's it, you know our wars were always limited. Uh, the, obviously the revolutionary war they're going to depend on the agricultural uh, might of the you know, the colonies and I don't know if might's the right word but certainly the farmers and that are going to do it. Uh rifles and uh muskets in those days not rifles but muskets in those well there was a Kentucky or so-called Pennsylvania rifles that were individuals and in, but we remember we got a lot of our crucial things from France and other countries war of 1812 somewhat depending on it uh you know a little, again it was always private because the government uh it seems so foreign to us today but the government never wanted to spend any money and uh so there, there's always this reliance. Well, the major gunpowder, I didn't choose them because they were a long time, was DuPont, but DuPont was the one primarily supplying gunpowder, and the government always relied on that. But then you get to the Mexican War, and the things are starting to come together uh, as far as the industrialization, but they're not there yet to the degree. Uh, um, I use the, the term uncertain giant, and that's a term that uh, Al Nevin used many years ago, the story, and that even in 1860, the United States economically and, um, you know, that way was an uncertain giant. Yes, we had all these natural resources and we could have man-made, but they hadn't come together. There's hints of it, certainly. And they depended on supplies from Civilians in the Mexican War and armament, but primarily the armaments were Springfield Army, Harper's Ferry that the, the troops carried then. This is going to be entirely different. Uh, they're simply not going to be able to rely uh, entirely on uh, the federal government, you know, armories and that, uh, Allegheny Arsenal, and Pittsburgh, those things. But foodstuffs, clothing, uniforms, all those things. On scale, I think the, the the war produced the government needed ten million shoes. I mean, just just you can go through staggering numbers here of what they needed to do uh, to wait the North to wage this war, and the only way they could do it. And things came together the 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 growing industrialization of the of the northern section and the uh, the impact of machinery and that on agriculture, where you could feed them. And armies of this scale, I think an interesting point just to make: what the Confederacy faced, a county in Connecticut, one county in Connecticut, that would have been Hartford, the area around Hartford, they produced more firearms in 1860 than the entire 11 states of the Confederacy. Hmm. Wow! But that still wouldn't be enough in the North you know and what the south does and i don't do i don't deal with that as it's another story entirely the south story of how they're able to come up with uh, sustaining their their cause is remarkable too
0: well there's a lot of different aspects of technology and um i think i want to start with what i believe is the most underrated possibly the most important and that is canned food so can you tell me about any industrials that get involved in this and how does the role of canned food uh, for a military change in the Civil War.
1: Well, the only one that I do well, the 2 of I'm primarily uh, uh Phil Armour. Uh, Armour's in Milwaukee. To, when the war begins, partners up with a man who's the foremost meat packer in that, and they are going to produce canned uh, pork and beef uh, for the army uh, on a scale. They're not alone, and none of these men are alone. Okay, there's other ones that are you know produce more. Uh, firearms, or they produce more of this. Uh, uh, but armor it gets into it uh, on a scale, and of course after the war, armor will be one of the major meat packers in the country. Uh, another one, very interesting figure, is Gail Borden. Uh, today, we, we're familiar with Borden's the company, Borden and Eagle Brand, but he would be able to produce uh, a condensed milk. Now, it's a sweet milk. It's not like what we think of condensed milk today is it's a drinkable milk and soldiers comment. And he is going to produce them on a massive scale himself, uh, with that, but you know, canned goods become part of it. But I just, I deal with those two men primarily in what they produce to sustain the troops in the field. But, uh, uh across the board, uh, you know, they they rely, the soldiers rely, or the government relies in uh, supplying them with rations and canned uh, canned goods. And that, that had already been occurring, but now with the war it comes to a large, much larger degree.
0: Right. My memory's a little hazy on this. I think Napoleon tried to figure out how to do this, maybe with limited success. And they have canned food in the 1830s, 1840s, but it's always at risk of spoiling, especially if the manufacturer does a poor job of sealing it is it done pretty well? Is this yes. is this able to supply most troops uh, in the Civil War, these canned foods?
1: Yeah, it's done well. Uh, now, you know, they have salt pork and they have hardtack and all that. For instance, just to go back to Gail Borden, he um, made a meat biscuit, uh, produced this dried meat biscuit. Uh, uh, and you know, he got an initial Army, con- but he saw he was in Texas and he saw the need as a, American troops are going through Texas en route to Mexico during that war. He saw the need for something that soldiers could eat, you know, that is not canned, that would laugh. And he came up with this meat biscuit. And the Army initially uh, signed a contract with him. And then after more tests, he found out that, to be honest about it, it just tastes (laughs) god-awful. And and the men didn't want to eat it. Welcome to Army food. yeah, and uh, they 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 got out of the contract, and it well Borden Borden nearly went well. He, he was on the verge of bankruptcy. He uh, he was one of the early settlers. I mean, fascinating man. He's involved. Gail Borden Borden's come, He's involved in the Texas Revolution. Uh, he's a newspaper man who has the uh, quote official organ of the Texas Revolution, and so he what he ends up is to recover from this. He'll have to sell a lot of his Texas land. But yes. And, but hard attack, we well know, you know, and soldiers, but, uh, you know, they would kill, kill beef and that, but as far as other, now, many of the men said, remember, uh, they would, uh, vegetables would be dried and they, uh, it was desiccated, uh, uh, desecrated was the term soldiers used for them. <laughs> But some of the things, I mean, with the meat that you're talking about, with, I am of armor and, uh, uh, Borden. Yeah, they were very, uh, men talked, uh. Very praising, of especially Borden's condensed uh, sweet milk, as they would call it, yeah, and he was able to do an evaporating process, and it was good, yes, it would last
0: and for listeners who are wondering why are you talking about this? I'm pretty sure Frederick the Great would much rather have canned food than he would whatever fancy new weapon uh, when it came to running an army. Um I think he or Napoleon said an army marches on its stomach. For example, Grant, I think in the Vicksburg campaign, he went beyond his supply lines. Was this because of the portability of food or, I mean, could he have done this without canned food from what you know?
1: Well, yeah, what he does is he goes beyond it and, you know, and Sherman, uh, Sherman, of course, the most famous is March to the Sea. Supply lines are tenuous throughout the war and to become enormously lengthy and, uh, uh, consequently, you know, you're, you're looking at an army, we find it may hard to believe, but a normal, uh, say the army of Potomac or army of Cumberland union armies, when they're in the March, uh, they're, they're staggering in the distance that they'll cover, you know, anywhere from 15 to 20 miles. And a lot of that's a wagon train. And, uh, yeah, that was part of it. The difficulties of it. That's why often, especially in the East, the army of Potomac would try to keep on the Potomac river. Or, or you know the Chesapeake Bay, it would reduce the length of their supply lines because you could outmarch them, and Lee, of course, did that in his in, uh, movement into Gettysburg in uh, June of eighteen sixty-three. So in turning, it, it's part of it, but yes, it's also the uh, the the sheer physical ability on on wretched roads. A lot of times that, that they're able to keep these wagon trains going, you know, to supply the men's need. But undoubtedly, if you can't feed the men, they're not going anywhere. That is you know, if you can't obviously give them ammunition and food, you're not going to be able to wage a war.
0: Well, yeah. Speaking of rickety roads, one of the most important inventions that has a huge impact on the Civil War are railroads. And for logistics, supply chains, transporting troops, this is really Mm -hmm. important. So can you tell me about how industrialists are involved in railroad barons in having trains be a bigger part of the war effort?
1: I took, uh, well, actually three men in a sense. Uh, the first one, the, I begin the book with him, uh, is Jagger Edgar Thompson. Uh, people are familiar with uh, well, American in- industry, particularly in the Gilded Age. You might re- know Well, J. Edgar Thompson was the name of a steel mill, massive steel mill in Pittsburgh. And it was. But Jagger Thompson was president of the Pennsylvania Railroad and what he is critical early on and his assistant his vice president thomas a scott who uh, some historians have argued was the greatest railroad executive of the era uh, and that includes the gilded age uh, they were instrumental in getting troops early to washington uh one of their employees and uh important person in that is andrew carnegie who i also profile his role early in the war but I chose Thompson because of his importance and what he does and he, uh, but primarily the Pennsylvania railroad will emerge from the civil war. Thanks to the, the skill and talents of Thompson, uh, they will be the dominant railroad from say the mid the Mississippi river to the East coast, the only competitor for that. Well, Baltimore and Ohio, Ohio to a limited degree, but the other one would be the New York central. And that's where Cornelius Vanderbilt, who I also profiled in the book, his uh, machinations, and they were truly machinations. Of all my men I cover in this book, he's the one that has a little bit of a stench about him with some of the things he does. Maybe he's maybe not alone, but most of these men don't. Uh, We think of them, you know, uh, some become robber barons, but they're not necessarily robber barons during the Civil War. But uh, they're absolutely vital. To the conduct of operations by the North in the Civil War, in turn, the South railroad network uh, becomes a somewhat a curse to them and how they have to do it. But there's no question. And the, the two men primarily, or the three men, are Jager Thompson, Thomas Scott, uh, and uh, uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt, uh, and their roles in it. Now, Garrett, oh, the O. the B. O is an important figure too, but I don't profile him.
0: I want to come back to the South and railroads, but first of all, with Carnegie, you mentioned that if there's anyone who has a stench about him, it would be him. What were some of the things that he did that could have someone be able to credibly, uh, credibly cl- uh, claim he was engaged in war profiteering?
1: Well, I'm, I'm not sure. No, I think Carnegie is a slater. Um, first of all, he he goes to Washington. He's the head of the Western Div- vision of the Pennsylvania railroad, uh, in Pittsburgh, he is called to Washington by Scott, his boss, and by Thompson, and he will be there for six months. And he is instrumental in, in working the, well, in fact, he is critical early on, the uh, Confederate sympathizers in Maryland, shut down the railroad between Baltimore and, uh, Washington Uh, and so Scott and, uh, Carnegie are heavily involved in getting that open early in the early months from Annapolis to Washington and eventually, uh, well in May, uh, late May through Baltimore, but no, what Carnegie really does, he goes back and he, he works for the railroad, uh, into 1863. It only, what he starts to do, he had been saving money and he starts to invest. And one of his investments is in a farm outside of Pittsburgh in the oil fields of the time, and he and a partner invest 40,000 dollars in this farm and this, you know, d- drill for oil, and he estimates later that it returned to him five million. Now that's a legitimate investment. It wasn't that. He only gets into the iron business late in the war. Uh, with his brother and other partners, he starts to produce, you know, buy into iron factories in the Pittsburgh area. But Carnegie that we know that is so famous and familiar to people of the Homestead strike and all these other things, he, he that's after the war. Hmm. During the war, he he does like other people. He, you know, the opportunities are there and he takes them. For instance, one man I profile is Sarus McCormick of course, McCormick invented the reaper. Uh, questions are about, about the initial reaper and that, and which I deal with, but by the time the civil, War, he's a Virginian and he has two brothers and those, he and his brothers uh, have moved to Chicago. McCormick was wise enough to see where his reaper was going to, uh, you know, really be, uh, purchased. And it was in the, the Midwest, the, the dark soil, that, and, uh, uh, northern states, not the southern states. And what he does in turn is the profits they make, and they make a lot of profits, uh, they invested in uh, Chicago real estate. And by the end of the war, the McCormick brothers, now the one dies during the war, but the McCormick brothers are the richest people in Chicago. Hmm. Uh, what's interesting about it is they're—they're, they're, as I said, Virginians, their sympathies are clearly for some kind of a political settlement to the war, one brother in particular, I think, yeah, you know, it's he's not real. He, he certainly alludes to it. He, I think he wanted the Confederacy to win. Saras McCormick, no, no, he just wanted, he wanted a, a piece of some kind, and uh, that. But uh, that's how they made their money. So the Carnegie, uh, he's the same way. It's just very shrewd investments, and those shrewd investments are going to pay off. Uh, well, as we well know, after the war.
0: Hey everyone, Scott here. We're going to take a very short break for a word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Wise, the account that helps you manage your money all around the world. I lived overseas for many years, and one of the biggest bottlenecks to international living is money transfers. You want to withdraw money from an ATM to access funds from your American bank account, and you don't realize you're getting hit with a $10 charge every single time you do that. Yeah, that did happen to me. So if you're dining in dollars or want to do business in baht, what a Wise account does is let you send, spend, and receive money in different currencies. Wise is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. This goes from a night out at a tapas bar in Spain to buying a property in the Yucatan. So if you're a digital nomad in Bali or want to. Sell money back to mom. It's simple. And this is all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. Wise works in over 160 countries, so your money's always at your fingertips. And over half of the transfers get their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this app. Join 16 million customers and learn how a Wise account can work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com unplugged. That's wise.com unplugged. One more time, wise.com unplugged. Yeah, I want to look at some of these other figures, but uh, first of all, when we were talking about railroads, you mentioned the South, and a lot of us know that they were vastly inferior to the North in terms of railroad capacity and in almost every aspect of industrial capacity. But... There have to have been industrialists out there as well, and some who even came up with innovation. Of the figures you focused on in your book, were there any prominent Southerners who came to mind?
1: Uh, Southerners? Right. No. Oh, okay. No. No, I I stayed away from them. I think there's – well, one time I was thinking about the possibility of doing both, but it just didn't – it wouldn't have worked that way, so uh, I have not. There is a story there. There are never any – degree of numbers like the North will have just because of the nature of the Southern society. Right. Uh, but there are some gifted people, uh, and, and what they do, uh, you know, you have these arsenals, uh, they, they manufacture weapons. Of course, what they do is they import a great deal of weapons from Britain in turn early in the war, particularly in 62, the South is winning battles and they're going to scarf up all the abandoned rifles and other equipment that are left in the battlefields, uh, so they they supply Yankees supply a lot of their stuff initially. But th- what they managed to do is remarkable. There's no question about that.
0: Okay, yeah. but you see it as if you tried to do a comparison, then you'd be grasping at straws to come up with Southerners that match all these Northern industrialists. With
1: anybody, yeah, comparable with it, yeah, yes, yes, right. that's correct.
0: Okay, I yeah. see. All right. Well, uh, a lot of the names you throw out um, are still noticeable, especially on tractors today. So John Deere and um, mm-hmm. Cormac, others too. The machines are they primarily agri- for agriculture, or are these steam engines that are used in other ways in the war?
1: Oh yeah. There's a le- uh, In some ways, I think the the most remarkable man, only because of what he does in this, and he's and he won't live long after the war. But I I, I researched him. His name was Henry Burden, B-U-R-D-E-N. And he came here as a Scottish immigrant, settled in Troy, New York, uh, worked for an iron factory. And eventually, he became ownership of it. And in the 1830s, he invented a machine to uh, forge horseshoes. In the, I think, 1857 it was, he got a, a patent renewed for it. And in sixty-two, another patent to re- improve it. But by the time the war comes, he could he could uh, cast or forge a horseshoe in one step. In fact, his firm could cast a horseshoe every second. Hmm. And he he supplied the Union Army with seventy million horseshoes. Wow. Yeah, it's 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 just staggering what that is, and and horses come, I think there's eight sizes and mules at four, and, you know, they could adjust the machine to make it different sizes. But if you do the math, you say, well, that's impossible in the 1860s for anybody to produce 70 million of anything, correct? And what in turn he did, though, if you do the figures and do the time and every second, you're going to come up with 70 million. Another one is Gordon McKay. Gordon McKay in the late 1850s bought the rights to machine, invented by Lyman Blake that would sew the uppers to the soles of shoes or boots. He improved it when the war comes. Uh, it's called the McKay stitcher. It is estimated that all half of the union shoes or boots that were produced by private firms and primarily in new England, this is where the shoe and boot uh, uh, industry was for all the you know, the decades before the war, when all shoes were handmade, it was estimated that half of the 10 million shoes were produced in K case stitchers. Now what's interesting about him and how fascinating about him was he didn't, he sold his machine. And then what he did was franchise them. So in other words, he got a, a small, I'm, I was never able to find out, but probably a, a few pennies for every shoe that was produced. And he, it was, you know, it's almost like, uh, I hate to use this term necessarily for most people to think of, he was like the Ray Kroc of, you know, the 1860s, <laughs> you know, he was one of the first ones to, to have this idea of franchising and, uh, and that, now he did, I think eventually bought two factories himself and made shoes himself, but that was the machine he made to do that. And, uh, you know, and that was, you know, there was just an example Robert Parrott, very famous West Pointer, ends up at Cold Spring, New York, across the river from upstream from West Point, called West Point Foundry, and he will supply the Union Army with more cannon and more armaments, ammunition than any other, any other armory uh, firm of its his kind. But with his uh, cannon, you can see him on battlefields or in photos. They, he put a wrought iron band around the breach that was able to, uh, much, they made the cannon much safely, much more safely. It wasn't necessarily his original, but he was able to perfect it in the sense of he could do it more cost effectively. And parrot cannons are in every battlefield of the, and Southerners tried to get parrot cannons too. So that's just an, he had the machinery to do it and he did that.
0: Right. Well, let's talk about something that is uh, maybe uh, especially weapons enthusiasts would know about, and that's the repeating firearm. Uh, did this invention occur during the war, before the war? Was it popularized during the Civil War?
1: Well, the one who's given credit for it is uh, Christopher Spencer. And Christopher Spencer, in the word of John Hay, Lincoln's secretary, was this quiet little Yankee. And he was working in the silk mill in uh Connecticut, and he, won the spare time, and late in the 1850s, he started to work on a what will, will become a repeating rifle. Uh, he made a wooden model, and as time went on, he wanted to make a working model, and ironically, one of the gunsmiths who worked for the Sharps Rifle Company gave him the pieces that he needed to put together this uh, repeating rifle, and so the Spencer rifle was He had a patent for it when the war began. He had a very great deal of difficulty getting any kind of approval from the War Department. There's always this argument, and it's a fair argument, that the War Department, certainly in 1861, was hidebound. Uh, They didn't want any changes. Uh, Well, see, when you change a primary weapon, not only do you change a primary weapon, you change all the ammunition, Mm -hmm. So that's going to cost a fortune. You know, and as I said, the government is very, uh, they don't want to spend money. Well, the war is going to change all that. And so he finally gets a contract from the Navy only through intercessions uh, with Gideon Wells because his bosses who invested in his uh, effort, the Cheney brothers, they were the silk barons, if you want to call them that. They they knew uh, Wells, and so Wells agreed to, uh, purchase his, uh rifle. And it, it was as Spencer would write later when we got the contract, we had no factory, we had no machines and we had no workers and they had to produce these rifles in the given amount of time. So they had, they rented the second floor of an abandoned pump, a piano, piano factory in Boston and went to work. And, uh, now he, he only got a dollar a gun, but later on, there were some problems. He went to Washington in August of 63 and got entry to the white house and spoke to Lincoln and Lincoln. He's important in all this Lincoln, you know, he had a, he was one of the presidents. He had a patent. It never worked well, but he had a patent, uh, and uh, he was his secretaries all said if any new ideas come in, uh, you had to let him Lincoln know about them. I think Lincoln once said that, you know, maybe crazy men are giving us ideas, but that doesn't mean the idea is crazy. And uh, so what happens is Lincoln asked for a demonstration, so he and Spencer go out to roughly the area where the Washington Monument is today, and they shoot his. Uh, rifle which is seven shots and uh, Lincoln hit the board all six shots hit the black mark once apparently Spencer hit the black mark more than once Uh, but anyways soon after that Lincoln says we want to purchase these uh, Spencer rifles and in turn carbines. I know it's I'm saying this rather long but this he's not alone Henry rifle come out but it is Spencer's rifles and carbines, particularly late in the war. Last year of the war, uh, union cavalry regiments, many of them were armed with Spencer carbines and they could level, you know, it's the same was in the by is It was a gun that loaded on Sunday and fired all week. And, uh, and, and they could put down a massive amount of firepower. Some infantry regiments either got, even got Spencer's. The only problem with soldiers were cavalry, not so much, but the, the seven shots were loaded through the butt of the rifle or his carbine, and it was in a tube. They were heavy, especially if you're infantry to carry. Uh, cavalrymen could put them in saddlebags and stuff, but they're very they're important. Now, are they decisive? Not necessarily, but in certain fields, they're decisive, particularly in 1864. There are some Spencer rifles at Gettysburg, for example and George Custer's cavalry brigade. They're the only ones. Two two regiments had uh, uh Spencer rifles at Gettysburg. Their go- their impact's going to be the next year when many of them are produced.
0: Okay, so by that point by the end of the war then Spencer rifles are appearing in all sorts of battles.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: Hmm. Right. Were there other weapons you focused on that really had a huge impact?
1: No, no, those are the, well, James B. Eads would make gunboats uh, early in the war. Uh, he was a, he made a fortune salvaging uh, wrecked ships from the bottom of the Mississippi and Ohio rivers. And he created, uh, you know, where the ability to go down underwater and, you know, just, uh, not like a tube, like, but, you know, you know, we think of people who dive. Well, he being the crude one that worked. And he would, he would made a fortune before the war and got out of the business in 58, but one brilliant engineer, absolutely brilliant engineer. And when the war came, he got a contract for six, uh, uh excuse me, seven gunboats. Those gunboats are going to be instrumental in the early campaigns in the Western waters that grants campaign against Fort Henry and Donaldson, uh, the, on the Mississippi river, Uh, he, he didn't design them, but he's the one who built them in the contract. And later on the war, he built a monitor style, uh, gunboat that was different from the original monitor, but a a similar idea, a revolving turret, uh, each to people today, Eads would be best known for the, uh, bridge over the Mississippi river at St. Louis. It's a national story Glenn, Yeah, he would do that. He was he was simply a brilliant. No, he he's the only other one that that I deal with as far as uh weapons or that 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 have an impact or change. The two most I think Spencer and Parrot are, are more important uh in, because of they involved, they were more involved in battlefields than Eads gunboats. So Eads gunboats were critical certainly in the first Year or so, of the war in the in the western waters, which was very important to the North.
0: Well, I'm from the Midwest, so I it would be against my culture if I didn't mention John Deere and ask about him. Who uh, John Deere <laughs> Green is probably the predominant color in a lot of uh, small towns. Yeah. Um, so uh,
1: I'm in a, I'm in a farming area in Pennsylvania, and John Deere's are everywhere. Right uh, here. He's an interesting man. You know, he fled from Vermont. He know, debtor's jail. Uh, went, ended up in, you know, of course, Illinois. Uh, invented the, the first plow from a, a discarded sawmill blade. Um, did everything you should do as a businessman. He was shrewd. He advertised. He went to the county fairs and the state fairs. And everybody soon became known because they said his plow could sing through the thick earth of the, you know, the, well, the old Northwest, if you will, and into Iowa, of course. And uh, he did everything right. And, but he had different partners. And unfortunately for him, by about 1858, he was going bankrupt. What he couldn't do is handle money. Fortunately, he had a very bright businessman son named Charles Deere who could handle money. And Charles Deere took over the company right prior to the war. And Charles, Charles Deere would be the one who would uh, lead the company during the during the Civil War. And then we know the rest of the story. I mean, it's not. But he, John Deere himself, I found to be a very fascinating man. One of those that just had an idea. Uh, for instance, Sarris McCormick, same thing. How do you let people know about your product? They advertise. They inundated newspapers, you know, salesmen, sales agents, so did Deere. I mean they did everything that you think of what modern companies would do. Uh they, they did to build up their businesses. They saw that they had to advertise, they had to get to people. Uh McCormick went he, well he was McCormick spent nearly 2 years during the war in Europe uh taking his reaper around to these various na- expositions, you know, and uh, winning medals from France and Britain for his reaper and ultimately that of course would benefit him after the war. Or uh, and, uh, Deere was the same, you know, they're both, Deer just couldn't handle money or he had partners that weren't the best thing, but the uh, McCormick was different. He had a brother that couldn't really handle money. And, uh, but yes, Deer's Deer's company gets a major stimulus uh, from the war. Similarly, we're along those lines. I, I profile the Studebaker brothers of South Bend, Indiana. They build a very good very solid wagon it ends up being called the studi now they're at the time the war comes they're only well known in let's say well besides indiana parts of uh, the old mid old north west territories midwest what the war does for them is they're so well built well for instance during the Gettysburg Campaign, Confederates capture, I think, 16 Studebaker wagons. And the only reason we know that is they actually write about the fact that they capture Studebaker wagons. They didn't, they didn't name the other wagons they captured. They just named the Studebaker wagons. <laughs> and so, so they become, you know, their name becomes out there.
0: And,
1: and I think there was, I'm probably wrong it's off the top of my head, there was, but there was a few thousand wagon makers in the United States at the time of the war. They're the only wagon maker that will end up building automobiles.
0: Hmm. And uh, the John Deere plows, are these mechanized at all, or does that not come till later?
1: Uh, later.
0: One of my favorite pieces of technology in the Civil War, I don't know if industrialists were involved with this at all, but aerial reconnaissance, uh, using balloons um, and being danger being shot out of the sky. Is that something that they're involved in, or is this uh, some just some cleverness on the Union and Confederate sides?
1: Well, uh, I don't cover Thaddeus Lowe, but Thaddeus Lowe is the one that's most well known about it. Uh, He's the Union man, but uh, by late, by all mid part of the war, there's not much more of that reconnaissance done from balloons. The Confederates tried, not rather very successfully, but Lowe does. I mean, there's no question about, particularly in the uh, Peninsula campaign and. June, May, June, uh, and July of 1862. Uh, and there's, I don't know, you may know better than me. I'm not sure there's, uh, any example of this in the Western theater, but, uh, my interest is, or my research and writing has always been in, in, in the Eastern theater. It could have been, but, uh, low, there's no such, there's no balloons at Gettysburg. There's none at Chancellorsville. Uh, those, I think they were very difficult to transport and to use. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was a problem. Yeah.
0: Right. And one uh, of
1: the most famous Americans in our history went up in the balloon. He said it, it was the only time he was, he was really scared in the war. And that was George Custer. <laughs> yeah. He was a staff officer and they sent him up to look uh, He I think he grabbed hold of his sides and sat down on the way up and the way down. But anyhow, yeah, he wrote about it.
0: He'd feel like, I have no control over my own fate now. Yes, I could have to do a several hundred meter charge and open lands, <laughs> yeah. you know, facing mini eight balls, exactly. whizzing past me. But in a yeah. balloon, I, I don't have any such control.
1: I will. I, the one man I say, and I, I devoted a chapter to him alone. Well, I ended up, I was planning to write, you know, two men per ch- chapter i bet you when you do the research i guess you count how many you're dealing with i ended up with 19 and that doesn't work uh but i devote one whole chapter to i think the man who revolutionized more than anything and that's jay cook the financier he he is the one who becomes the sole agent for the sale sale of bonds to the public and he does it uh by combining your self-interest with patriotism and what he does changes how the United States, particularly in World War One and World War Two, are going to finance their conflicts. And so I call he, the chapter with him. I call it the visionary, and he had that vision of how you should do it. And uh, his achievement is uh, remarkable. And he had at one point he had twenty five hundred uh, sales reps uh, going through the uh, north uh, selling bonds to ordinary people. Hmm.
0: What was it like with these sales reps? Were they getting into all the the pageantry that you'd see in World War II with these bond sales? Yeah,
1: well, he advertised a great deal. Uh, you know, he really did uh, newspapers and uh, he did all that too. Uh, but the sales reps, their problem was they had to go <laughs> these areas where, you know, is there a road that goes anywhere? You know, and mm-hmm. trying to go from you know, literally farmhouse to farmhouse and small town to small town, besides city streets. And that's what they did, uh but his primary what he would do from his office, both in Philadelphia and washington d c now he he is very close to Salmon Chase, the treasury secretary, and there are some things about that relationship that would not be tolerated today. There's no question about that uh that doesn't mean necessarily Cook made a lot of money off of that he but he ends up nobody did better than he did. in fact, he tried other agents, and other agents it just didn't work. Cook knew how to do it, but his, how he got his word out there was through newspaper advertising. And then, of course, these agents that would go into these, you know, these towns and cities and sell the bonds that way. And you could come into his offices in both Philly and Washington, but that was very limited, right? If you want to reach out into the, say, Wisconsin, Minnesota, uh, Illinois, you know, you have to send people out there, you know, and that's what he did.
0: So it sounds like his bond sales really moved the needle. For the war effort.
1: Oh yeah, and 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 the idea behind it, the very idea that I remember—I shouldn't (laughs) part of my age is—but in 1850s, 1950s, when we went to elementary school, uh, we had to we could purchase stamps and put them in a book that would allow us to buy uh, a, a savings bond. This is our way of elementary kids fighting those bad Russians in the 1850s, right? And, uh, but the idea behind that, where you get it down to the people, if you will, that comes from Jay Cook, I think, in, during the Civil War. And that's why I think of all these men, he is probably the most profound revolutionary in that sense of his impact on how we conduct war.
0: Hey, everyone. Scott here. One more brief word from our sponsors.
2: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? This episode is brought to
0: you by Calitrin. Calitrin is a weight loss supplement made from collagen, protein, and digestive enzymes. Calitrin is designed to assist the body in repairing and rebuilding lean muscle using top quality ingredients. The reason it contains collagen, which is the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the body, is because it decreases as we age. Because Calitrin rebuilds this critical protein, it promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. I tried it for a month, slept great, felt more energetic, and noticeably shed weight that was gained over the holidays. Calitrin has an 86% success rate with their 90-day supply. Here are some customer testimonials. Marie in Pennsylvania lost 117 pounds with Calatrin. Ron in Texas lost 35 pounds. And Diane not only lost weight, but found relief from arthritis. This week, you can take advantage of their President's Day sale. Buy the ninety-day supply and get an extra month free plus free shipping. Ordering is extremely easy. Just text the word "unplugged" to three zero six zero five, and you'll get a link to the special offer. Text the word "unplugged" to three zero six zero five. Again, text "unplugged" to three zero six zero five. By World War One, World War II our politicians conscious of jay cook and thinking okay he did this let's take some of these methods and try it again
1: oh i i don't i can't tell you how and they all named that but that's what they did Mm -hmm. you know yeah that's what they did you know yes we have an income tax in world one we we have the taxes okay but it's a bond you remember you you seen the the posters and that you know looking the books and, or, and World War Two comes and it's on uh, uh, movie reels and stuff where you buy bonds and so forth. Yeah, that's that's this idea of linking your self-personal interest to patriotism or to your, to your little bit. If you're not in the Army or Navy, but this is your little bit to help your government and to sustain the war effort. And that's what Cook sold to the American the people that invested.
0: Well, yeah, this is really interesting. And I'd like to look at this at the big picture and this is an era before what people call the ro- the gilded age or the era of the robber barons and a negative perspective would be well this is the beginning of the military industrial complex that eisenhower warned us about uh, but a positive perspective could be well before wars were fought in, in this era if you're looking at large empires like in russia or the ottoman empire You didn't really have citizens, you had subjects, and you would force them to do different things. Maybe they would get tax-exempt status, but they'd be forced to collect materials or iron ore for the military machine of the state. But with capitalism, you're not forcing people in the same way, and some might get wealthy, but freedom can still be maintained even wartime. What did you take from this when you were looking at all these different figures about these wealthy industrialists getting involved in the war effort?
1: Well, for instance, uh, numbers of them were abolitionists. Uh, John Deere was an abolitionist. Now, it's different from anti-slavery. Uh, C- Carnegie, you know, the poor Scottish immigrant, he was a- he was an abolitionist. Others of them, uh, I, I profile Edward Squip, uh, you know, pharmaceutical company. He made, he purified ether and chloroform, and he, he, he felt that it was, you don't make a lot of money from it because you, this is, your contribution to the war effort, Abram Hewitt, who uh, Trenton Aaron works, uh, he he's involved with the Cooper family, and they are they they even offered to turn over their factory to the government to run to, and they said there's no he says there's no sense making you shouldn't it's wrong to make profit. So in turn, these men are that way uh, to a degree. They are interested in the war effort. They want the North. The only ones that waver, honestly, as I mentioned before, are the McCormick brothers, all the rest of them are invested in the war effort. Personally, they want the North to win and, uh, they want the country to, uh, be saved. And of course the, the abolitionists, the anti, and most of them all were anti slavery, if not abolitionists, uh, they want, you know, slavery ended in that too. In that sense, they're all there. uh, what the impact of all this is is controversial, and I, I you know I address this uh some say that this is the true beginning of it, where it, what it seems because inflation was a factor in the north at the same time, you have many accounts of how well the northern people were doing as a whole, but inflation probably eroded the wages of northern workers by twenty five percent is what economists say. What this does, I think, more than anything is accelerate that process f- from an agricultural mercantile kind of e- economy society to what we know as uh, the industrialization of America that occurs in the, in the forthcoming decades. Because railroads lead, end the war in far greater, better shape than they were before the war. So that means, and at the same time, one of the other ones I I uh, talk about is uh, Huntington, uh, you know, Collis Huntington, who's involved with the, uh, the Central Pacific Railroad, which they're starting to build the, the Transcontinental Railroad during the war. All these things are coming together because the, the war spurred all this. It increased the na- need to modernize, to mechanize, uh, to organize on a scale on president. So I think in that sense, uh, economists agree that certainly. It accelerated everything, and it opens the door to a different America that is going to lead to the 20th century. I, I don't think there's any question. Besides the the great impact of the abolition of slavery and what that meant for the country and the idea that secession is not going to—we are a union now, uh, for sure, and those things. But as far as the economy goes, it, it changes the way Americans are going. As uh, Senator John Sherman said, and I quote him, he wrote to his brother William. He said that he couldn't believe it. In, I think it was 1865. He said, no longer are we t- uh, our businessmen. What they're talking about is millions, meaning millions of dollars. So the, the viewpoint has broadened to a great degree. You know, Before they never talked to millions. Now they were talking about millions as war ends.
0: All right. Well, this is a really interesting transformational period that I think uh, a lot of people have overlooked or didn't know about. So the book is Civil War Barons. Jeffrey, thank you for joining us and sharing all of this with us. Thank you very much, Scott. I appreciate it. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to check out this show. First of all, I'd like to thank the Knowlton's Rangers, and especially our spymasters, Baron Fraser, Carl from Norway, Chris from Moon Moondoggy from Ohio, and Rick Knowlton, and I'll explain what that means in a second. If you like this show, please like and subscribe on the podcast listener of your choice. Join our Facebook page as well. You can find it if you just search for History Unplugged. And one of the best ways you can help out the show is if you join the Knowltons Rangers. The Knowltons Rangers were an elite reconnaissance and espionage detachment of the Continental Army in the Revolutionary War. But it's also the name of the History Unplugged membership program. Learn how to join by going to patreon.com unplugged. So here's what you get if you become one of the Knowlton's Rangers. If you join at the level of Scout, you can get early access to new podcast episodes, along with enjoying absolutely every single episode of the History Unplugged podcast ad-free. All 270 and counting episodes. If you join at the level of Intelligence Officer, you can also get access to premium episodes, like a multi-part series on the life of Audie Murphy, the most decorated combat soldier in World War II, or the 10-part series Ottoman Lives, a series that looks at the cast of characters that made up the Ottoman Empire, such as the sultan, the eunuch, the harem servant girl, and the soldier. And finally, if you join at the level of spymaster, you get all the same stuff as the scouts and intelligence officers, but you also get a shout-out to you and or your business at the end of each episode, a three-pack of hardcover history books, plus you'll be put at the very front of the line for me to answer your question about history, and I can guarantee I will dedicate an episode that's about an hour long or so to your question. Sign up at patreon.com slash unplugged. Again, that's patreon dot com slash unplugged. Anyway, those are the ways you can help out the show. Thank you so much for your support. Thanks for listening to the History Unplugged Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show to get your daily dose of all things history-related from ancient Greece to the Cold War. We'll see you next time at the History Unplugged podcast.
2: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win?